0: Well, good morning for those of you who I haven't had the privilege to meet yet. My name is Keith Brault, and I am delighted to be serving at Church of the Incarnation this summer as the interim associate rector. And it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, Wilson and I have been working on uh, with w- Wilson taking the lead, Have been working on uh, a series in the book of Hebrews that'll carry us for about seven weeks. And so today we're going to open that book and look at those first two chapters and uh, with God's help, receive encouragement from the Holy Spirit. As we begin, um, I want to make a few statements about suffering as we gather here once again in person as we've all been through what, for most of us, has probably been one of the most difficult and trying uh, year and a half, year and three months um, of our lives, for various reasons, whether you're a child um, trying to go to school, or whether you're a parent um, just trying to, to live life and do all the things that we normally do, it seems like everyone has been pushed a little bit harder and suffered somewhat this year. Not that there haven't been good things happening as well, but I think that we're all tired in some way. Sustained sustained suffering strikes at the heart of our sense of belonging and safety. So, If you suffer for a long time in a sustained way, what happens is it dislodges your fundamental sense of belonging and safety. It dislodges our sense of having a place in the world. And when our sense of belonging and safety is dislodged, it's hard to find rest or peace. And when that happens, our restlessness and constant agitation make us vulnerable, vulnerable to drifting, due to fatigue and maybe a fatalistic attitude that whatever is going to happen next will happen and there's no point in me trying to change the outcome. We just kind of pull the oars in without meaning to drift. We shrivel in our pain. We may be utterly isolated. So imagine a group of people gathered in the same room who are all worn out like this, who've all been through a season of sustained suffering. A group of people who's gathered in a room like this who are utterly exhausted. They're suffocating in their suffering. And imagine that this people, this group of people who are fatigued and lonely and frustrated, they're grieving losses, they're impatient with the weaknesses and vulnerabilities of others, What if this group of people has gathered in the same room to hear a sermon? What would that sermon be about? What might that pastor say? How would a good shepherd bind up their wounds and nourish them? What do you say to a group of people like that? Is it even possible in that moment to find words that will lift drooping hands and strengthen weak knees and make straight paths for feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed? The book of Hebrews is a sermon. It's 45 minutes if you read it from beginning to end. The writer, we don't know who the writer is, calls it a brief exhortation, a brief sermon. It's written to a group of people just like this. And the author, he points us to Jesus over and over again. He's just turning Jesus like a diamond so that these people might see him for who he is and what he did and what he is currently doing. The writer of this sermon, the book of Hebrews, is compelled to believe that if these beleaguered people can just see Jesus in certain ways, if they can just vividly see Jesus in specific ways, that, that in seeing him, they will be drawn into his rest. They will have their sense of belonging and safety restored. And instead of drifting away, they'll be renewed in their strength to cling to him. So we're going to start this morning in chapters 1 and 2. If you've got your Bibles, you can open to Hebrews chapter 1. And we're going to start just with that simple outline. A simple outline, by the way, that I think holds up throughout every passage of the book of Hebrews. Who is Jesus? What did he do? And what is he doing now? Who is Jesus? What did he do? And what is he doing now? So in chapters one and two, who is Jesus? The book opens in in chapter one, verses one through four, with this thesis paragraph that we heard read this morning, And it it runs through almost like a. it reverberates through the entirety of the book. But it opens up with this concussive, beautiful, panoramic view of Jesus as exactly Yahweh. Jesus is completely God. That's the first thing that we see about Jesus. That's the first thing that this sermon writer wants us to hear. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in a different way. Not mediating his word through a prophet that he appoints and calls and and gives a message to and sends out to deliver it. Now he's spoken to us in a son kind of a way. It says that he appointed Jesus the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. So Jesus didn't just appear late on the scene and get appointed to be an heir. Jesus is back at the beginning creating the entire world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, listen, and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is completely God. And listen to what he's doing now just here. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus was there at the beginning and he created everything. God invited Jesus later in the chapter to sit at his right hand. Right now, Jesus is ruling over everything and personally upholding the whole universe. So to these suffering people, first, this this preacher wants these beleaguered people to see Jesus as this eternal God who is currently sitting down at the right hand of God, having done some important things, and is even in the midst of this fiercest suffering. This this pastor wants these people to, to see and to, to try to begin to understand or believe again that Yes, in fact, Jesus is holding all things together by the power of his word. Jesus understands Yahweh because he's the son of Yahweh. Jesus has natural conversation with Yahweh because he is the son of Yahweh. Jesus can freely approach Yahweh in any circumstance because he is the son of Yahweh, because Jesus is God. Some of my children are gonna be here at 10.30, Henry and Peter and Oliver. They're humans because they're my sons and I'm a human. Jesus, as God's son, is God because he's the son of of God, So there's this natural, free, uninhibited connection in terms of their nature. In chapter 2, if you flip over, the concern in chapter 2 is the other side of the coin. Jesus is completely Yahweh in chapter 1. In chapter 2, this pastor wants to say, but he's also completely human. He's a person just like you. He's exactly A person just like you. Says in verses 11 and 12. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, verse 14, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus is a sibling. I don't know how many of you have a sister or a brother in your family. But if you do, likely when you're having a hard time or when you're getting together for Thanksgiving or whenever you're together, There's an understanding and a connection that exists that's unlike any other connection because that's your sibling. They grew up with you. They know you arguably as well as anyone else, depending on how long you've been married. But they know your origin story. They went through that stuff with you. And when I'm heartbroken or confused or when I really need prayer or counsel, I pick up the phone and call my sister. And she does the same thing. We talk each other off the ledge, right? Right? Uh, regularly. And certainly there are other people in my life like that, but I've only got this relationship with one of my sisters. And I know that many of you have relationships like that with a sibling. Jesus here calls you his sibling. He became exactly a person so that he could be your sibling. The one on the other end of that phone. The one in your favorites um, page on your Uh, contacts in your phone. It goes on in verses 17 to 18. The preacher says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he just as he understands God and has natural conversation with God because Jesus is God, because he's the son of God. He understands you. This preacher with this group of people gathered who are worn out, and suffering, and feel dislocated, and like they don't belong, and they don't feel safe in this world, and and maybe some of them, because of that, are straining to find rest or peace anywhere, and because of that, many are drifting away, or many are just letting their arms droop, and they're saying, God, "What's the point of trying? Whatever is going to happen is going to happen, and it's probably going to be another bad thing." So I don't really feel like trying anymore. These people who are gathered together, this preacher, for whatever reason, right out of the gate, wants them first to see that Jesus is God. He's right there next to God. And he's exactly you. He's one of your siblings. And he understands you. And he has natural conversation with you. Because he's your sibling. He's the son of God, but he's also a son of man. That means that you don't have to hide from Jesus any more than I have to hide from my sister. You don't have to lie to Jesus. You don't have to put up a good front. You don't have to lie to yourself in order to maintain some facade of a relationship with Jesus. The writer of this sermon in the second chapter obliterates all that and says, Jesus is right there in your foxhole. Jesus grew up with you. Jesus was there when you were made. Jesus has been there next to you all along, and he's not ashamed to call you sibling, brother, sister. We can have a natural conversation with him about our fatigue and our loneliness and our depression, our frustration, our conflict, our failures, our grief, our loss, our shame. He shares in our flesh and blood. He himself has suffered when tempted so that he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's felt the strain of all those vulnerabilities that we feel. So in terms of belonging and safety, the author of Hebrews shows us that Jesus, who exactly represents both parties, he secures our safety with God and our rest and our peace. That's what we're going to look at next. So this is who Jesus is. He's exactly God, and he's exactly human. But what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do that's so important that's at the headwaters of this Sermon of Hebrews. Jesus did the work of a priest. In chapter one and throughout the book, uh, the theme is Jesus did the work of a priest. As one who can perfectly represent both parties, as one who can exactly represent both parties, Jesus did some things that Bring these two parties together and eternally secure a peace and a rest for everyone who's included in this. We heard uh, at, in the Exodus passage a couple of times referenced, maybe you remember this, these, in all of this detail about the colors of these threads and these garments that sound beautiful with all the cobalt and red and gold. On the shoulder um, of the priest's garments, the shoulders there are these 12 stones, six on each shoulder, and on those stones are etched the names of each of the tribes of Israel, right? But then later on, um, in the same passage, we read about this breastplate that had, I think, three rows of four or four rows of three, however it worked out. Maybe it was four rows of three, um, of these beautiful precious stones and on each of those stones also was etched like a signet. It said the names of all the sons of Israel so that whoever's appointed as the high priest puts this thing on or these things on. And every time they go into the holy places where the only the priest can go, what's that priest doing? Is that priest alone? The priest is carrying all of the people of Israel, right, on, on, on behalf of, of whatever this offering is. Representing all of his brothers and sisters. So those priests with that breastplate, they go in and they make these sacrifices for atonement. They make purification for sin, which is kind of a, an image of they clear out all the pollution, uh, that's, that's accumulated um, since the last offering. They clear it all out so that there's, um, there's a sense, again, of belonging and of um, safety and peace and rest. So, in a sense, that's what these priests are doing. Then they oftentimes incorporate this peace offering where some of the meat that's been sacrificed is shared in a meal between the priest's And the people who brought the sacrifice in the first place so that there's like this union like we do here every Sunday. We remember that we've been invited to this meal. It's a meal of peace. It's a meal of fellowship. It's a meal that's that's enabled because somehow all of our pollution has been cleared out and we have belonging before God. And then there's this blessing that happens afterwards. We read about that in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you. Aaron would say, usually probably with blood on his hands because he's been sacrificing and butchering animals all day and he probably butchered, he butchered your animal. And then with bloody hands says, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And God says, when he gave those words to Moses to give to Aaron, he said, that's how I want my name put on my people. I want Aaron, after doing these sacrifices, to put my name on my people. And this is how I want it done. That's the message that God wants to convey to these beleaguered people once their sins have been purified. These priests offered sacrifices constantly. Of all the furniture that we read about in the Old Testament when the tabernacle is being described, there's no chair for the priest. The priest never sits down. There's like everything else that you can think of, but there's no chair. There's a table, but there's no chair. So Jesus, in verse 3, does this work as a priest. It says... He is the radiance of the glory of God in chapter 1 and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There are different verb tenses that convey different kinds of actions. Like in Ephesians, when Paul says that we are to be filled with the Spirit, it's like, be filled right now with the Spirit, but keep on continually being filled with the Spirit. Never stop being filled with the Spirit. But there's another verb tense that's, that's a past tense that has an end point. Like, okay, I did that, and it's done. Like, Aaron uh, cook was in here earlier making coffee that we can enjoy after the service is over. Aaron made the coffee. Right? That's another verb tense. He's not continually making the coffee. Right? He would not probably say yes to that job. <laughs> right? It's a one and done. He gets here early. He makes the coffee. Then he can go home and hang out and um, have a cup of coffee himself on his porch and then join us at 1030. But he made the coffee. That's what Jesus did. This isn't how... Um, Offerings were done in the Old Testament. They were constantly being offered. But when Jesus made purification for sins, it's like this thing that he did one time. It's this single offering. It says in 10 verse, or verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Having made purification for sins, he sat down. He sat down. The only other place in scripture where I can think of that where this activity, like he sat down and he's still sitting down, happens is in creation. And in fact, in chapter four, verse 10, the writer, the, the, the preacher talks about creation and talks about God resting. And that's what we should think about here. Why did God rest on the seventh day? I mean, for lots of reasons, but one reason is there's nothing else to do. Uh, He worked for six days. He looked around, and he was like, this is great. This is really, really good. Like the squirrel eye, that's good, you know? Like I don't need to do anything to tweak it. The water cycle seems like it's working, you know? Like everything down there has enough to eat. And these seasons are pretty nice, and all the like gravitational stuff that needs to happen to keep this planet from freezing or burning up that seems to be pretty tight. I'm gonna, I guess I'm done. And he sits down and he rests to punctuate, it's like a mic drop. Like, to punctuate, there's nothing else I can do to improve it. When Jesus made purification for our sins, when Jesus made purification for your sins, when Jesus blew out all the pollution that would be like acrid smoke in God's nostrils if you tried to approach him, when Jesus had utterly purified you from an evil conscience so that you could have a permanent, undisturbed place of belonging and safety, so that you could have undisturbed peace and rest in the embrace of God. When Jesus had done all the work necessary for that to happen, to make you stand in the presence of the Father, blameless, with great joy, when he was done, he sat down. He dropped the mic on your purification. The preacher of this sermon in Hebrews, he wants these people to know that. He's not gonna answer every question in two chapters of the sermon. He's not coming in and pulling up a chair and talking about all the things that need to be talked about. But he starts with this. This God man, he did this work for you that you're familiar with from the Old Testament. And he did it in such a way that nothing has to be done to improve it. Nothing can be done to improve it. You don't have to work for peace with God. You don't have to lie to God to get it or to yourself. Jesus has been tempted in every respect, just as we are. He gets it. He's your sibling. He can have a free and open conversation with you about anything. That has nothing to do, the author here says, with your standing before God, with your belonging, with your safety, with your peace. There is no real obstacle between you and God. That's what the author wants us to hear. There is no real obstacle between you and God. Only imagined ones. Man, and how easily I believe those imagined ones. And and so do these folks. You get into a tough spot. You go through a season of drought. You get battered by a sustained time of suffering. And you start believing lies. You start thinking that this this temple that was torn from top to bottom, for you at least, has Velcro on it. And and because you're going through such a dark dark time, maybe just for you, it's been maybe temporarily pulled back together. And God is blocked out or you're blocked out from him. Maybe you've fallen into sin or, or failure or something like that. And you think, well, I need to keep myself at arm's length for a while for a respectable time before I can go and approach God again. The writer of this book is saying, no, there is no obstacle. Jesus right now, what is he doing this minute? He's sitting down at the right hand of God and he's holding out not the bloody hands because he was touching a a cow or a lamb, holding out bloody hands that he offered up his own body to obtain and his bloody brow and his bloody back and his side and his feet. He's perpetually forever sitting down at God's right hand proving that you have perfect peace and belonging and rest. And he's forever holding out those hands to you and offering that blessing. Yahweh be with you. Be gracious to you. Give you peace. The author of this sermon, this pastor, as these folks gather, he's burdened for these folks because he sees them in their pain. But he's persuaded that if we can just see Jesus clearly in specific ways for who he is and what he's done and what he is doing, that that alone will draw us back in to a place of belonging and rest In a place instead of drifting from him, we're thinking of him as work to do. That we'll be able to let our guard down and come and love him and cling to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Please stand.